0: Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Hey everybody, it's Peter. I just want to get a little bookkeeping out of the way before we get started with this episode proper. This is an interview with Tyler Parrott, who's one of the designers of Keyforge Adventures. He designed the first adventure, which is out now, which is called Rise of the Key Racken, And we talk a lot about that, but we don't talk about it at first. First, we find out a little bit about Tyler. We talk a lot about a lot of different games at the beginning of this episode, but it goes on for about a half an hour. It's almost a design discussion before we get into the episode proper. So if you just want to hear about KeyForge Adventures, skip ahead about 30 minutes. The other thing I want to do at the beginning is say, I've played it a couple times now and I'm really enjoying it. So we'll see how it holds up with time, but I've had a lot of fun with this. So early review, you'll hear more of my thoughts on it in future episodes. I also want to thank our Patreon supporters before we get started. We have Christopher Yo, who is a co-op fan. We have Charles Taft, who's a co-op lover and Nathan Rexrote, who is a co-op lover as well. We also got a special message from Michael Mannequin Hardy, who's one of our Patreon supporters, that says, I appreciate the chemistry all have, and I'm a big fan of what Jason has to offer in particular. So hard to suss out his game tastes. Being unpredictable is a virtue, I guess. But I think you guys bringing him on, him joining forces with you as such, is a good thing. His shelf stories are genuinely important contributions to the hobby, and, as a mental health worker myself, I think they are gifts to individual communities and societies at large. The fact that he is now associated with you guys is a real asset to your channel slash podcast slash brand, and I hope you continue to work together. In spite of the fact that, on the surface, his contributions may seem outside of the wheelhouse, I like to think that what he adds expands the wheelhouse for the better. Well, Michael, I totally agree with you. Jason has been an excellent contribution to the podcast. His episodes coming out on Wednesday has definitely expanded what we're doing here. You know, the YouTube channel has always been about a lot of solo games as well as co-op, and we've mostly stayed co-op here. Jason brings a lot of that solo aspect to the podcast as well to meet up more with the way our YouTube channel works, as well as just a great voice to our community, a different voice. I think that's one of the great strengths of our community. We are all cooperative, but we also have our own likes and our own tastes. And I think all those tastes together, really, I think you'll easily find somebody that your tastes match up with. And I love that diversity that we have within our group. So, yeah, Jason is awesome. Steve, Colin, Barrett, Mike. We truly appreciate everybody's opinions, even though when we get together, we make a lot of fun of each other. Everybody has a good point, and everybody likes different kind of games, and that's okay. It's okay for us to have these different tastes. We have fun ragging on each other about it, but that doesn't make anyone right. All it does is mean that we have differences of opinion, and that's something to be embraced for sure. So we appreciate you, Michael. We appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. You all are what keep us going, not just the Patreon supporters, but all of our listeners, everybody who joins us on the Slack, everybody who's left a review on iTunes. All those things help us. They motivate us. They keep us going. So we want to thank all of you for that. Now on to the episode proper. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Peter and I'm here with Tyler. Hello. This is Tyler Parrott from Fantasy Flight Games, and he's here to talk about Keyforge Adventures today. Super excited to have you. Well, I'm always happy to be on and talk about this cool stuff that I make. Yes. Well, we're gonna get into that in a little bit, but that you know, that's just a little tease. First, we want to find out <laughs> a little bit about you and what makes you tick and what got you into your role with Fantasy Flight. So let's let's start at the beginning. As far as gaming goes, your gaming history, what was your early memories of gaming? What got you into it? What got you to be a fanatic to the point where you're now designing games?
1: Well, I've always been a tabletop game person. I was tinkering around with games as a kid, but playing them and then was making games as a kid because, you know, that's how kids go, I guess. You would say I got seriously into it around 2004 when I started playing Magic the Gathering. And I have, frankly, been playing Magic ever since. I still play it now very regularly.
0: <laughs> yeah, that definitely was a, a jumping off point for a lot of people, for sure.
1: Yeah, I would say Magic the Gathering. And also, I didn't play D&D for a while, but I played a local homebrew role-playing game through middle school. That was like a extracurricular. It was run by a teacher, and it was like she was using a role-playing game to teach kids Frankly, it's brilliant and it still exists and if you're in the Bay Area, go check out the role play workshop. <laughs> nice.
0: So was it for education? So did you did did they actually
1: teach you stuff about school in the role play or not directly? It was okay. I mean it was just like any other fantasy role playing game. It was D&D except that there were elements of D&D she didn't like, so she like changed it to be frankly more realistic and less heroic. Got it. I would say the big selling points of the role play Workshop from a teaching angle was math, obviously. Yep. But also civics, ethics, problem solving, right? Absolutely. It's a simulation to help kids become more comfortable with social skills. Absolutely. We were all definitely playing fantasy races, going on adventures and, you know, doing hijinks, but because it was it catered more towards kids, like we were still saving the world from evil, but- we weren't murder hobos in the D&D sense. If we broke a law, we went to jail.
0: Like Nice. So they're teaching you ethics as well. You can't just kill everything you run into. Hey, wait, I have a beef with you. I'm going to pull out my sword right now.
1: Yeah. And like that never realistically happened, but we all kind of like were told up front, you're part of a society. You can't just do whatever you want. You need to respect society. And frankly, the, you know, maybe this is just me personally speaking to the kind of role-playing games that I like. I think that makes for more interesting puzzles to solve, right? When you can't just do whatever you want.
0: Absolutely. No, you have to think more three-dimensionally, four-dimensionally. You can't just think one-dimensionally, right? Pull out sword, kill thing in front of me, keep going forward. So that's neat. And I love when teachers and any real influencers, right? Anybody that you look up to in your life brings joy to your life, not just brings, you know, obviously there's lots of people that are out there that bring education to your life, but this is somebody you looked up to that now brought something to you beyond just the academic learning that happens in school and and really, you know, has translated into a career for you at this point.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, in that respect, it's a little unique, right? But my closest friend growing up was just very bad at math. But because we did the role play workshop and I helped him with you know, what he was learning, like that was a very effective way for him to learn math that he otherwise would have struggled with a lot.
0: And I feel like if you meant it to be an educational game, like right, you're fighting against the Pythagorean theorem, you're not going to get that same level of learning because you're not going to get that same level of investment. Absolutely. Yes, there can be educational games, but
1: I really think the the fun factor is the most important thing. And we'll come back to that probably, but sort of an adage that I would stick to in game design is when you're teaching a new game to somebody, and I guess this is maybe less game design and more just game playing and game exposure, but when you're teaching a game to somebody, it's more important for them to have fun the first time they play than for them to get it right.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: If you play a game with somebody and they get a third of the rules wrong, but they have fun and want to play again, that means you successfully taught them the game. They'll learn the rules eventually, but if they don't learn to enjoy the game, they're not going to want to keep playing to get the rules right eventually, right?
0: No, that's a really good point. And honestly, something I fall into, a trap I fall into when playing with my kids, I definitely, Mm -hmm. as a game designer myself, I get this mindset where I don't want to get the rules wrong. And I really need to learn to let go and relax, especially on those first plays and make sure their plays are enjoyable, not 10 minutes of looking up rules online. Yeah, that that is a good lesson, for sure.
1: And and we might come back to that because I was told that but didn't internalize it and then experienced it. I wrote a whole article about it which I don't think is up anymore cuz it's been a while since I had my own website. To skip ahead a little bit, most of my passion for tabletop games has always revolved around card games, probably because I spent most of my time playing Magic and I'm, you know, really invested in Magic which then Turned into the Call of Cthulhu living card game and the Lord of the Rings living card game and the Warhammer Conquest living card game. And I, I dabbled a little bit in Pokemon and I dabbled a little bit in, uh, oh, what was what was the other one? Yu Gi Oh! Not Yu Gi Oh! Specifically, not Yu Gi Oh! I at <laughs> no point was I ever interested in Yu Gi Oh! I'm trying to think of what other one there ones was. Were out oh, Weiss Schwartz, that's the one I'm thinking of, which was oh, I never would have come up with that in a million years. No, no, I wouldn't <laughs> expect you to. It is a fascinating game that I personally really like. With a theme that a lot of people probably wouldn't connect with because it's just a bunch of anime. I've never even heard of this game. Because it's out of Japan. It was just wildly too expensive to actually get into. (laughs) Oh, okay. I got it. But it was a very fun game. At this point, I think I've played all of Fantasy Flight's card games.
0: Nice. So do you have a favorite? I mean, I I hate to, I know you're working on some. So, I mean, I don't want to, you know, call you out and you don't have to say if you don't want to, but uh, maybe one or two that stand out above the
1: rest for you? Oh, absolutely. Depending on my mood or context, it's definitely either the Lord of the Rings, the card game, which I still play a lot and get to work on occasionally, which is just one of my favorite games, period, or the Star Wars Living card game, which I know was a big miss for a lot of people but it was a big hit for me. I
0: hope they go back to the packets idea where you you know you have sets of cards that come together because for people who don't love deck building and I know it's funny you say Lord of the Rings that's on one end of the spectrum where you really have to deck build for that one and then the Star Wars one what did
1: you pick like six packets or 10 packets or something like that. So for people that don't know the the Star Wars Living Card Game, the basic premise was you built a deck by choosing 10 objectives. And then the objectives were things that your opponent, they would give you resources and they would were also targets for your opponents to attack. And each objective came with 10 cards that went in your deck. So you ended up with 10 objectives and also a 50 card deck. And the 50 card deck was entirely determined by the contents of your objective deck. So for example, if I wanted to have Luke Skywalker in my deck, I was also locked into including a Twi'lek loyalist a Dagobah training ground, a Jedi lightsaber, and trust your feelings. And Luke, that's the five. Oh, sorry. It was five cards per set. And then if you include right, it, uh, Right. So that's the five card set plus Luke's objective. It meant that you could have very good cards that were in a set with some weak or situational cards. Personally, it was very rewarding for me to try to figure out, okay, I want to put the best cards in my deck, but I also want all of the cards in my deck to be as good as possible. Right. Where's the balance between the highest ceiling and the highest floor? And how can I build a deck or a strategy sometimes in which if I end up with weak cards in my hand, I still have something to do with them. And I'm not just sitting here being like, oh, I got a bad draw. Paired with the whole edge battle mechanic, which during the game, you know, I would attack with some characters and you would defend with some characters and... Then we would bid cards from our hand to try to determine who had air quotes, the edge, aka who gets to go first and who gets to do more damage. And it created this sort of puzzle of, okay, I could play Yoda and he's really good as a character, but if I don't play him, he can definitely win me this battle. Is it more important to put him on the board or use him to win the the battle? And so there were just so many interesting strategic decisions in that game. Uh, That was the only game that I really got into competitively. And I competed a lot. I wrote articles about it regularly. I was the runner-up in the second world championship. I subsequently did worse at every following world championship, which I guess checks out. There's not much way to go from second place except down. Right. (laughs) Also, I was using, as time went on, more and more of my effort was spent towards trying to work with FFG as opposed to trying to win at the tournament, right? So how did that happen? Well, I found FFG through their card games primary, right? that That was sort of my entry point. I knew that they existed, but I didn't really take a serious look at them until I started playing Lord of the Rings and then Star Wars and then Warhammer Conquest, which was also an excellent game that unfortunately did not go as far as it deserved on account of it being an IP that we didn't own. Right. (laughs) That was a good
0: game. That's the one where you had the strongholds and you built to the three different sides of the strongholds. Is that the one I'm thinking of?
1: No, I'm not sure exactly what you're thinking of. Conquest was the game where It was Warhammer 40k and uh, you had a warlord and there were seven planets and every round you would fight over a planet and one player would win each planet. And once you had so many planets, you won.
0: I was thinking Warhammer Invasion, which is the fantasy version of that. Never mind,
1: Sorry. Yeah. Actually, that one, I that might be the, the only one that I haven't played. But then only because A, I've never found Warhammer Fantasy as an IP interesting and B, it came out right before it came out before Call of Cthulhu and as a huge Lovecraft fan obviously i jumped on Cthulhu first and didn't bother looking back Call of Cthulhu LCG also a very good game it has some let's just say it didn't age well <laughs> okay i didn't play that one much the big issue with that game was that trying to understand what would happen with a given board state was just very complicated because there were five different kinds of stats that a character could have and they were in all sorts of combinations so it's like if i assign these characters this way and then they defend this way that happens okay but then if i do this other thing and they react differently then this other thing happens like what do i need to do to make sure my characters don't all go insane okay but then if i do that then i'm not going to actually get anything so suddenly it's been 10 minutes and you haven't committed your characters to a story yet right because you haven't figured out what the optimal permutation of characters is.
0: Yeah. I mean, it comes down to a lot of times theme versus mechanics, right? You you want to streamline as much as possible with that mechanic mindset, but then you lose theme and and how much theme loss is acceptable and how much theme do you need to put in there to make it feel like you want it to feel, but without bogging the players down. And that's a hard balance to reach sometimes,
1: I think. Oh, it's, it's often a hard balance to reach. Uh, on the one hand, you have the decipher star wars ccg which is just probably the most accurate you know you're gonna get the most star warsy star wars scenes out of that game but it's also going to a be an absolute nightmare to try to explain to someone who's new to the game what the (laughs) hell is going on and b you're going to find that A lot of decks aren't going to match up in an interesting way, because like, if my deck is all about training Luke on Dagobah, and that's how I'm going to win, and you're, you know, on Tatooine with Jabba's palace trying to get a lot of money, or whatever, because you're a gangster, like, we're not interacting, (laughs) we're on different planets. Right. It's just a race at that point. It's just a race at that point, which, you know, isn't as interesting. The Star Wars LCG kind of swung the other direction. 2014 World Championships was won by uh, a bunch of Ewoks attacking and blowing up the Death Star, which is like, uh, okay, maybe. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The idea that Chewbacca could attack and the Devastator could defend and then Chewbacca could blow up the Devastator, right? Like that was a little much for a lot of people, understandably. But it did guarantee that there were always interaction points to to be happening. So you do kind of have to find the middle ground in some capacity. As people experiment with game design, you know, it's easier to say, okay, but not don't do this and don't do that and don't do that and maybe do more of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, we definitely don't have a
0: problem talking game design here. We d- do it on every podcast. So, I, I mean, I love these kind of discussions. I kind of wanted to get back to something you said earlier. And then I actually have something else I wanted to get back to that you said earlier. You, you sparked a lot of uh, conversation. Number one, you were talking about first experiences and first learning experiences. And that's my mm-hmm. number one tip for game designers You know, we get so wrapped around what we want our game to be finally, but I don't think we often spend enough time working on that first game experience, that demo experience. I mean, you know, as well as I do now, people buy games and they don't play them a hundred times necessarily. They may only play it once or twice. And certainly if they don't enjoy that first experience, they're never going to get past that. So Mm -hmm. I think as designers, we really do need to focus more on that first gameplay experience and make sure that's as good as it can be, because that's how you're going to win people.
1: The board game market, the tabletop game market right now also is just like absolutely exploding. And also sometimes I worry that it's overflowing. There's probably a dozen great games that exist that come out. And, you know, if they're not marketed aggressively, if people don't know that they exist, there's a good chance that even a fantastic game doesn't get bought and therefore doesn't get played or maybe it gets bought and played once and then, you know, they're on to the next game. Which is, on the one hand, really showing just how good game designers are these days. That, like, every third game I see is just, it's super clean, provides interesting game decisions, it looks great. Like, there's a lot of very good board games on the market right now. But also, that means there's a lot of board games on the market right now.
0: Right. And what was great 10 years ago is just okay now. We look at it and we're like, yeah, I've seen that before. I mean, but there's some really good board games where you look at it and it's like, Yeah, that one's all right. But I mean, if this had come out 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you'd be all over it.
1: You think it was the greatest thing ever invented. Catan fits that sort of spot very nicely of like when it hit the American market, it absolutely exploded. The fact that Catan is its own studio is testament to that. But also like a lot of more hardcore gamers don't love it for various reasons, because at the end of the day, it's a 15, 20 year old game. Right. One thing that I've learned, I'll give you a my hot take, my level up moment, my most recent level up moment as a game designer, is that at the end of the day, games are about making choices. It's about presenting your players with interesting decision points and then them making decisions and theoretically being rewarded for that. Yep. But there's only so many things that a player can, A, hold onto in their brain at once. But more importantly... Only so much information that a player can receive initially before it gets to be too much. And obviously, that's different for different people. But my recent thought is that the ideal spot you want to be in is to present your player with a bunch of, if not binary, then small and few options. You want to present a lot of decisions, but each decision is only a few options at a time, and they're all sequential. I think that one of the reasons Keyforge is such a good game is because it does that very elegantly. You look at your hand and the first decision you make is which house do you want to play? And there's only three options, maybe even only two if you're lucky. And (laughs) then you say, okay, I chose my one house out of three. And now out of the three cards of that house, what order do I want to play them in? Okay, we did that, great, I'm done, now it's your turn. And then we just keep doing that of like, I'm gonna choose between three houses and then I'm gonna choose the sequence of, let's say three to eight cards. Right. If I'm really lucky, I have a bunch of cards in play too. And so I get to use those.
0: Well, and that adds to your decision-making space, right? Because you may choose a house that you don't even have in your hand. You could just choose what's in front of you. You right. know, that 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 expands the decision-making space. But I think the nice part about Keyforge is it's a build. You know that from the turn before. You, you don't start with 50 things on the board. So you just have that choice of your hand at the beginning, and then you build up as it goes.
1: And that was exactly what I was about to say too, which is, The other element you want is scaling. You want the first couple decisions to be simpler with few options, but you want as the game to go on the options to get more numerous or the decisions to get more complicated because theoretically, as you play the game, you are learning the game. What you don't want is to force someone to have to learn all of the game and then they get to start playing. You want someone to be able to learn as they play, even if that means the early decisions are going to be incorrect.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But you don't want people to feel stupid either. You've got to give them choices that they can make, (laughs) you know, and and I hate to say that there isn't a a terrible one, but, uh, you know, some games don't follow this and certainly the heavier ones don't. But you don't want the player to lose on turn one because they made a terrible choice the first time they ever picked up this game.
1: Yes. Well, there is room for that, though, right? Because a lot of low randomness games, that's kind of how it works. Imagine chess or Game of Thrones, the board game, aka diplomacy or Think of any other game with very minimal or even no randomness. It's going to be very hard for a less experienced player to beat a more experienced player. Absolutely. Those games, because all of the variety comes from player decision. And the more experienced player is going to make the better decision almost all the time. But that's not to say that those games are bad, obviously, right? Diplomacy and chess have been around for God knows how long. Game of Thrones is one of the standout board games that Fantasy Flight has published.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're still supporting it after all these years. So, I mean, we talked about older games, you know, not sticking around. That one has lasted the test of
1: time. Right. So, like, clearly there is something there. But as long as people know that that's what they're getting into or, and I think Game of Thrones leverages this very well, you can rely on sort of the, the multiplayer politics to counterbalance the skill gap. Yep. I might be the best player at the table, but if the entire table teams up against me, I'm not going to win.
0: One, the whole table probably knows that going in as well. (laughs) Because you know, if you're the one that's played 500 times and everybody else is new, they're going to have a pretty good idea of who they need to look out for.
1: Exactly. But that's mostly just to say that you don't need to go out of your way to keep the initial complexity low. If your audience knows that's what they're getting into, because also a lot of games, I mean, if you buy Gloomhaven, you know you're signing up for a huge, highly complicated. It's going to take you a long time, right? Twilight Imperium is the same way. These are games where, if you're playing it, theoretically, you should know what you're getting into. But people want that.
0: You should know by the size of the box for those games, right? <laughs> I mean, and it's certainly when you open up Gloomhaven and have to sort everything. It's like, oh my gosh! If you didn't sign up for it, you're probably out on the uh, the punching and setup
1: of that one. Well, and, and it's funny because, like, most people wouldn't think about this, but box size absolutely helps communicate that kind of thing. Yep. There's a reason that Keyforge decks are teeny tiny little 40 card boxes and Gloomhaven is a $125 like monstrosity that tells you ahead of time, OK, this game is small and this game is big. Most people wouldn't think about it, but, you know, that's what's going on subconsciously because a lot so much of game design, right, is trying to. Communicate something to the audience indirectly. Might as well use every tool in your toolbox, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No. Box size is a good one. And uh, and when when people
0: get that wrong, I, I think it can be detrimental to the game as well. You put something with cutesy art in a tiny box, and it is food chain magnate. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's you're not going to speak to your audience, right? You're you're right. calling out to the wrong audience, and then you know conversely, you got this giant overproduced game, and I think. Companies have made this mistake more recently. I don't remember this in the past, but, you know, you make these huge games with thousands of miniatures in it and you're expecting something. And if it doesn't live up to that, it's like, oh, well, this game's overproduced. That's where, you know, that context starts coming in. And so, yeah, I think production has a lot to do with how well your game is received because your audience may never see it because they just walk past it on the store shelf.
1: And vice versa. It's valuable to know who the audience like obviously it's valuable to know who the audience is but that also I think determines sort of the complexity ceiling of your game. This was something that Keyforge takes pretty seriously. Yeah. And certainly we took it pretty seriously with Keyforge Adventures. The idea that like okay, Keyforge is intentionally trying to reach a broader, more casual audience. So there is a limit to what we can put in this game complexity wise right lord of the rings was designed for gamers like lord of the rings was literally a gamer saying hey other gamers goldfish decks what if that was the whole game right at no <laughs> point was this ever like yes but what about the people who mostly don't play card games what do they want it's like no no, no. that's not who this is for right this right. is for the magic players who want to goldfish their deck but maybe they're also lord of the rings fans and maybe we can give them a compelling experience by playing against an automated deck.
0: And then Marvel Champions came out and lowered the complexity barrier a little bit, which made a lot of sense because Marvel's very popular right now. Not that yes. Lord of the Rings isn't, but that IP is going to bring new players in. And I mean, it's almost a good stepping stone for the complexity. Now, I say that and Galaxy's Most Wanted just came out and kicked everybody in the teeth. So (laughs) I think they decided to ramp Marvel up a
1: notch on this latest expansion. That's actually a different topic, complexity and difficulty, right? Yes. If I remember correctly, I don't remember Galaxy's Most Wanted being all that more complicated than the original core set, but it is absolutely more difficult. It's not more complicated, but it does what you said earlier, which is, and especially for the Ronin
0: mission, and I play a lot of <laughs> Marvel champions. That's my LCG of choice. Mm-hmm. We have a stream channel. I stream it every Friday, but we all have our own at the one-stop co-op shop. So Colin and Steve and Terrence all like Lord of the Rings, like you. They're definitely, you know, love getting in there, playing with those decks, grinding on them. Mike, that usually hosts with me, he's big into Arkham Horror LCG. So we've all got our favorites. And actually, it's a big, funny thing where we uh, (laughs) debate them all the time. But for me, it's Marvel. And what Marvel did with Galaxy's Most Wanted, it didn't increase the complexity of any of the cards too much, but it does start with like 20 things on the board. And you just got to deal with a lot right from the beginning.
1: Yeah. I would not recommend Galaxy's Most Wanted for a new Marvel player, perhaps. No, for sure. But yes, certainly adding the ship, right? Adding the ship, I think, added a lot of just immediate complexity. And I'll be honest, I was very much
0: thinking before I played it that it was going to be the worst part of the expansion for me. I'm like, why did they add this stupid thing to it? All it does is give oh, you a the resource. Ship is great, we love the what? ship. Oh no, I agree now after playing it because I saw what you did with it, right? Yeah, that's at fair. First, that's fair. At first, I thought when I saw it, I was like, oh, it's just an extra resource. Who cares? all right, you're starting me with a little bit of an advantage. What I didn't know was the choice that you were going to have with that ship every turn. Do I use it as a resource? Do I use it to remove threat from this? Do I use it to remove threat from that? Can I attack with it? Like there's a lot of options and each mission does it differently. So yeah, I mean, you got me wound up on Marvel champions now. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) KeyForge is also one of my favorite games of all time, which is funny because we're one-stop co-op shop. So we don't typically do competitive, but anybody who's been paying attention to us for a while knows I've been singing the Praises of Keyforge for a long time as well cuz uh, I just love the card system and the card play system in it.
1: Well, uh, have I got good news for you then, my dude. I know. I know. So let's get into Keyforge Adventures. I we we buried the lead
0: long enough. We're <laughs> 30 minutes in now. Let's let's get to the hotness. So, tell me something about Keyforge Adventures.
1: On the one hand, it's an idea that we've sort of had in the back of our heads for a while of like what would co-op Keyforge look like? Keyforge was not at any point designed to support co-op play. But obviously that doesn't mean that it can't be done, right? And I personally, I think it's particularly funny because uh, as an aside, up until fairly recently, the primary game I was working on was Legend of the Five Rings. And the final expansion for Legend of the Five Rings is coming out this summer. And it is, spoiler alert, a co-op expansion where we
0: add co-op. Oh, come on. Now I'm going to have to buy L5R just (laughs) to get the co-op experience. Are you kidding me? Oh, see, I've always been interested in L5R. I just couldn't get over the learning barrier of that one. Yes. But now, now you're teasing me.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I'll be honest with you. The co-op absolutely does not lower the learning barrier. of No, I can't
0: imagine it would.
1: (laughs) Um, In fact, it probably raises it, but it does provide a compelling co-op experience. So I went straight from hey, can we design a co-op version of L5R to, hey, can we design a co-op version of Keyforge? And I'm like, all right, I guess that's my brand now.
0: You're the co-op guy. You're, you're the turn competitive into co-op guy anyway.
1: Well, and if we're being honest, I would say the biggest thing on my portfolio, right, for when I was applying to be a game designer at FFG was, hey, I've been working on Lord of the Rings as a, a playtester tester and or freelancer for the last several years. So I know Lord of the Rings really well. <laughs> Nice. So, you know, it, it does kind of make sense. I have a, a pretty significant co-op background. And I'll even add that like when I was in college, pandemic came out. And one of my buddies who was more of a board gamer than I am saw it come out and said, you know, I think Tyler might like this. This was before it the whole co-op board game thing exploded and now everybody's making co-op board games.
0: As well they should, by the way, as the one stop co-op shop. <laughs> when I when we first started this podcast, we so it started as a podcast four years ago, four and a half years ago, something like that. We're like, we going to have enough to talk about if we just talk about cooperative games, <laughs> let alone now four oh, years boy. later? I mean, yeah. I mean, we've got two YouTube channels that just focus on co-op games. We've got a podcast. So yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> there's definitely been plenty out there to keep us busy for the last four years. That's for sure.
1: For sure. Anyway, the long story short is he got it for me thinking I would like it. Turns out he was right. And so I've been fascinated with co-op games ever since. So anyway, back to KeyForge Adventures. Well, no, but I, I think that's a good background for our, our listeners to have sure, is sure. that you come from that
0: co-op background. So this isn't somebody coming in that had been on Key Forge the whole time. That's like, huh, how do we take our baby and turn it into something that it's not? Because I think sometimes you get these Kickstarters, right? And they're like, oh, and it's got mm-hmm. a competitive mode and it's got a cooperative mode and it's got this and that and the other kitchen sink. And you're like, well, nobody could have done a good job on all of that, right? You kind of get stuck in your mindset for certain things. So I think it's cool that they brought you in from the outside as someone who has put co-op modes on competitive games in the past, had some experience with it. Instead of letting the designers have to worry about the next set and doing this cooperative thing, now you've got somebody dedicated just to the cooperative mode, which I think is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so when we approached Keyforge Adventures, it was like we we sort of knew that this was a thing that we would want to do eventually. And so we Brad Andrews was experimenting with co-op game design for months and months before we actually even decided that we this was something we wanted to do. He was just kind of doing it as like a does the space exist? If it does, what does it look like? What would a co-op version of Keyforge need to function since it wasn't designed as a co-op game? Yep. And that definitely laid the groundwork for once Aaron and I actually sat down and said, okay. But now, for real, this is a thing that we're doing. It made it easier because it was like, oh, you know, we need some way to decide how the enemy creatures are going to be used, right? Like normally, right. a player decides: is this creature going to reap? Is this creature going to fight? We started with the idea that some creatures were always fighters and some were always reapers. That evolved into the prey keyword. Ooh, okay. Do tell. Which is the creature will have a key? Will have a a prey? You know, kind of in the same way that Arkham does. Prey, the creature with the lowest power, right? Okay. If there is a creature and it has the lowest power, then we will fight. If there isn't a creature with the lowest power, then we won't fight. Or perhaps as a better example, the rightmost creature with five or less power. Oh, okay. Okay. If all my creatures have six or more power, then there isn't one, so we won't fight and it'll reap. But if there is, then it'll fight. Not every creature has prey, of course, but that gave us sort of a a tool to help decide automatically what the enemy creatures were going to do. We also figured out pretty quickly that we would need a certain volume of actions because something that I learned from Lord of the Rings primarily, but Arkham to a lesser extent, is the idea that if you have a lot of things that you can't see my air quotes, air quotes into play, (laughs) right, then the board state gets pretty complicated pretty fast. Yeah. And since you need to scale the number of encounter cards that get seen during the game based on the number of players, Right. whether that's each player draws so many cards or whether that's you draw one card per player or right, whatever. If I'm playing a three player game and we're drawing six adventure cards around and they're all creatures, that's six creatures being added to the board every round. That's going to add up very fast in terms of trying to figure out what's going on on the board, forgetting triggers, also, creatures tend to be slightly more powerful than actions because they stay on the board and keep doing the thing until they're dead.
0: Yeah. Well, and not only that, but that limits the complexity per creature, right? If each creature is doing like got this 10-step algorithm, you know, and you got six of them on the board, the AI turn is going to take longer than the player's turn. And that's not fun for anybody. Exactly.
1: And so we, we quickly figured out that like there was a limit to the number of creatures we could include, which frankly is good, right? You want variety in your encounter decks. Absolutely. As an aside, we definitely did talk about the idea of what it would look like to have a Keyforge adventure that was in some way random or algorithmically generated or procedurally generated or whatever, right? Because that's part of Keyforge's DNA. Yep. And it is certainly not off the table. Nice. But it wasn't something that we wanted to do initially for a bunch of reasons. For one, this was something that we wanted to get out to the public as quickly as we could which meant that we couldn't wait on some printer somewhere to print it and then ship it halfway across the country and then eventually get to a game store, right? And so that's a major factor for why it's a free printable experience. Okay. On the other hand, we wanted this to be something that we could guarantee would be fun for everyone. And frankly, any amount of algorithmically generatedness is going to mean that there are peaks and valleys. And so it just gave us way more fine-toothed control over the experience when I can guarantee you each of these adventure decks is going to be the same. It meant that I could better fine-tune the difficulty. It meant that I could fine-tune the pacing. That was, I'm not going to say an issue, but something that we thought about and talked about and designed around quite a lot is the idea of what's the pace of of the adventure. Cause you kind of want, you know, any adventure you want the beginning of the adventure to be not lighthearted, but simpler and less stressful and feel like it's building towards something. And then you want the middle of the adventure to be like, okay, and now things have gotten more challenging, but we're still good to go. And then, it, and then you want the end of it to be like, you know, your climactic finale early versions of the key adventure, which is the first one? I thought I think that's awesome. By the way, when you said kraken earlier,
0: I had to look at it again because I'd always just called it the kraken. It's the first oh. one. <laughs> come on, this is keyforge. Oh, I, I know it's keyforge. I didn't even it didn't even come to me. It's it's spelled kraken. I mean, it, there's no question about it. But I just missed the e in there
1: and the y. Uh, I don't know why. So, an early version of the kraken, for example, because of the sort of boss fight nature of it. So the Key Racken for context, um, I'm sure by uh, by the time this comes out, everyone will know what, how it works. But for context, the idea behind the Key Racken is you win the game by defeating the Key racket. It's a boss fight. You still care about generating Ambert and forging keys because it's Key Forge. But rather than forging keys to win the game, the theme that I was going for was each key you forge exposes some weakness of the Key racket. And we sort of mechanically made that apparent by having it gain armor for each of your unforged keys. So as I forge keys, its armor value goes down. It becomes easier to fight, easier to damage, easier to kill. What that meant was the gameplay experience, the pacing by default was, here's this big monster. It's got all of its defenses and all of its armor and all of its you know effects are at full power. And as you play the game, it will get easier because you're lowering its defenses and building your own board and all of that. But when I describe it that way, it's like, oh, the game is at its hardest on turn one. That doesn't sound fun.
0: No, not with you putting cards out every turn. <laughs> I'm sure the board right? states get exactly. to build up and all that. So, so that compensates, I am sure, for it.
1: And so we actually had to go through a lot of iteration to try to find the right balance of, yeah, but we still want it to feel scary in the beginning because the story that we're trying to tell here is, It's a fight that I, the player, will eventually win if I can keep fighting because I'm building up my strength throughout the game and I'm also depowering the enemy by exposing its weaknesses or countering what the deck is doing or whatever. So we wanted that sense of like, it's a big scary monster that we need to figure out how to kill. And as we execute on that plan, we can more quickly advance towards victory. But we also wanted the difficulty to start out reasonable and scale a little bit we ended up in an interesting place where the game doesn't get harder as you play but it gets different which actually personally i think is more interesting sure um and that wasn't even the goal initially that was something i kind of stumbled into of like in the beginning it's hard for one reason in the end it's hard for another reason it doesn't get more difficult as you or even less difficult as you play it just gets different difficult that makes which sense. is compelling because it keeps you engaged The whole time. There's no point at which you feel like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I can do. There's always something you can do. And maybe what you need to do changes so that you can't just have a single strategy and rely on that to win.
0: So before we go more into the specific bosses themselves, let's talk about the general just turn structure of a game. So is it going to be each player goes and then the villain goes or is the player going to go then have an enemy phase or is it going to be interwoven somehow? How is turn structure going to work in the game?
1: Sure. Uh, I guess a, a quick outline for how Keyforge Adventures works, um, and both of the adventures are constructed in this way, is uh, I take a turn, and then I take a turn for the adventure. So I take my turn, and then after my turn is over, there will be an enemy turn. And during the enemy turn, I control the Kyraken doing the things that the keyraken is supposed to do. I'm not going to make decisions for the Kyraken, because all of the decisions are pre-scripted. On the cards, okay. On the cards, right. But I'm going to be the one drawing the card and resolving the effect and activating the creature or whatever.
0: Now, will they only act against my battle line, or could they act against the yes. other players at the table battle line? So it's it's really like mano imano, mano. You're going to go, then the key going to attack you. Then the next player is going to go. Key going to attack them.
1: Yes, but you still get player interaction, and we did so. We did sort of this differently in each each adventure, but. With the Kyraken, the player interaction is just that all the cards are always in play. On the one hand, all cards are always in play, right? So if I play Gateway to Dis, Destroy All Creatures, that will destroy all of my creatures and all of the Kyraken's creatures and all of my teammates' creatures. Oh, wow. All creatures are going to die, 100%. (laughs) Right, right. right? So like, the other players still have to care about what I'm doing and vice versa, right? I can play upgrades on my friend's creatures. Okay. Or I can use an action to whatever. I don't have great examples for this is is why I'm struggling a little bit. And part of it is because we did specifically say that any instance of the word friendly on a card only means your own. It doesn't mean a teammates. Uh, Otherwise the game broke very fast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so you can't power up one creature to like 30. You know, everybody adds power counters to one player's creature and that player gets to have all the fun. So you still have to boost up your own stuff.
1: But it also means that like I can't say use inspiration to say ready and use my teammates creature partially because we would just reuse the best creature until we won because it's not your teammate readies and uses their creature. It's I ready and use that creature. Right No, that makes sense. Even though we're all on a team, it feels worse. But the other angle there is that it's the same battle line of Kirak and creatures that are fighting each of us. So if the key has a, a tentacle, that's a big problem for you, but not a problem for me. I can help you out by killing it before it goes for you. Got it. And, and so that kind of thing. So w- while there's slightly less direct player interaction, right? Again, this was designed as a competitive game. There is still a decent amount of indirect collaboration of like, okay, threat analysis and also, it's like, OK, how much damage can you do on my turn? How much damage can I do on my turn? OK, Marvel does this, too, right? OK, well, assuming nothing horrible happens, we can get 20 damage on the key rack and by the end of your turn and then in the following turn cycle, maybe we can kill it or we need to deal with that tentacle, but it's protected by the shield arm. So I'm going to kill the shield arm first. And then on your turn, you can go uh, fight the, the tentacle. That's the real problem. Right. That kind of thing. Yep. No, it makes
0: sense. And again, you're given the restrictions of Keyforge, but at the same time, I think you have done some things, it sounds like, to add in cooperative play because that's important, right? Cooperative players are going to want that. Now, let me ask as far as scaling goes, is this one to four? And can you play
1: true solo just one deck against the Key Racken? Yes. So the scaling is one to three. Okay. And there is a reason for that, which I'll get to. But it was super duper mega important and I play tested very aggressively solo play because if you're making co-op and it can't support solo play, especially during a pandemic,
0: then right. what are you doing
1: <laughs> Yes. I'll be honest, the idea of co-op Keyforge was something we all kind of had in the back of our minds and once we all went home and we couldn't come back to work anymore and no one could go to their friend's house, we were like, okay, this needs to be a priority now. Yeah. So it went from R and D to active development, kind of overnight once the pandemic hit. Now, that makes sense. So why three players specifically? As your high end, just out of curiosity. Yes. So obviously, all the other games that that you might ex- expect us to be drawing from, and you know we did draw from, right? Lord of the Rings, Arkham, Marvel, they all go one to four. So I wanted a three for KeyForge. Well, honestly, four player Lord of the Rings is really close to being Twilight Imperium. It's not Twilight <laughs> Imperial. but like. A lot of the times people are like, oh, yes, well, it scales up to four. And if I'm being honest, nothing is stopping you from playing four player Keyforge adventures. I just don't recommend it because at that point, the game becomes long enough and complicated enough that it stops feeling like Keyforge. Got it. And I don't want to recommend something to someone that is going to be a different experience than what they think they're getting into.
0: And I'll be honest, I love Marvel Champions, but I don't even think I want to play that at three or four. And even three yeah. for me is high. I think it's that game is best at two. And yeah, I mean, every game has this, right? They have a, a player range, but they're certainly mm-hmm. better at certain player counts than others. And I'm glad that you knew your player range and, and tried to stay within it. That says something, right? You know, that's that's honesty on the box, or in this case, PDF, right, yeah. rather than trying to deceive people just to get the biggest audience possible.
1: Absolutely. And if we're being perfectly honest, there are almost definitely people that will enjoy. <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell this story because it's a great story. I like to tell this story. I guarantee you that there will be people that enjoy four, five, even whatever, six-player KeyForge Adventures. I think they're crazy, but they're going to enjoy it. I want <laughs> right. to play a 16-player game of Magic the Gathering. It took eight hours and I had an absolute blast. Would I ever do it again? No, but I had an absolute blast and we all had a great time and it was a great thing to do, but no one would ever market it, suggest it. Of course, yeah.
0: But it's a a once in a lifetime experience. So if you want to play, what we're saying, I got a quote from Tyler right here. If you want to play 16 player KeyForge Adventures, you go right ahead. You do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, which is exactly. And that was my point is like, just because I'm not suggesting it doesn't mean that it isn't going to be fun for you if you think that's going to be fun. I do think three player Keyforge Adventures is very fun and does feel like Keyforge. Cool. It is a fundamentally different experience from two player and also a fundamentally different experience from one player, right? They're all going to be very different from each other. I think all three player counts are fun. And that was something that I did care a decent amount about. I wanted Keyforge Adventures to be fun at 3 player and I wanted Keyforge Adventures to be w- fun at 1 player. Those are the the hard ones. But actually this sort of gets back to why, right? Like why would I care about 3 player other than well, yes, it's possible. Well, because if I get 3 people together, our options are two people get to play Keyforge and one person watches or three people get to play Keyforge Adventures together. Right? 3 player is sort of that awkward spot in card games where most card games don't support three player play even at all. Or if they do, it's kind of lackluster, but it's frankly pretty common to get three friends together to want to play games. And it's like, okay, well, you know, there's all these two player games, but like, uh, there's a lot less three player games. So it's, it's important to me with co-op experiences that three players specifically be really fun. In fact, that was a big part of why when Brad and I designed the Multiplayer, aka more than two player variant for Legend of the Five Rings, we did the same thing. We said, we are specifically targeting the three player count here. And so we want this to be as fun as possible for three players. And and I took sort of the same approach with Keyforge Adventures. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of moving parts. It's going to take a while. And I probably wouldn't recommend it for new players. But if you know Keyforge and you're familiar enough with how adventures work, I think three players, is gonna. you're going to have a lot of fun with it. Very cool. So let me ask you, and, and
0: I think I may know the answer to this, but difficulty scaling. How do you, like, do you have cards that are coming with the set that lets you scale difficulty? How are you going to say, okay, I've beaten the key rack in 10 times already, and I'm ready for something new. I'm ready for more of a challenge. How, how are you going to scale up that difficulty?
1: So this was something that we went back and forth about a lot. And for a while, there wasn't difficulty scaling, other than... I could just bring a better deck or a weaker deck. That, that's what I thought you might say, actually. <laughs> I was actually thinking, because my other question
0: was, what do you do with weak decks, right? Like, can I beat this game with weak decks? So we'll get to that next, but go ahead and finish the uh, the difficulty scaling question.
1: Yeah. So on at first, I mean, a big part of this, right, is like to give people something to try out their decks with or to give them a challenge to maybe explore decks that they wouldn't otherwise be playing. Keyforge, at its core, is a game where we are racing to generate amber. At the end of the day, that's kind of all that matters. You can't win against the Key by generating amber. If you generate 1,000,000 amber, you won't win. That's just impossible.
0: Because you still need to do the damage. That'll only help break his armor, right? And then you still have to do damage after that.
1: So your most competitive, fastest amber generation, most amber control, Call of the Archons deck, is going to be really bad against the Key racket That's intentional. We wanted to take decks that would be good in tournaments and say, okay, but what if you weren't good here? What if your Bad Worlds Collide Brobnar deck was actually what you wanted to be playing because that's the deck that fights good? And so it was intentional, right? That these Keyforge Adventures encourage you to explore your collection, pull out decks that you maybe haven't thought about in a while, try new decks that you don't know to try to get a sense of how the deck works. That's awesome. Brings
0: value to the, those decks that that people weren't necessarily going to play otherwise.
1: I, I like yes. that a lot. Um, and so it's very important for Keyforge Adventures that it be something that is fun to play with a lot of decks, and also that it challenge players. Right, some amount of this is like, yeah, bring your best deck. The Keyrakin will beat it. Now go back to the drawing board and try to find something else. The idea that like players might have to hunt through their collection to find a deck to beat it is sort of an objective. Now that said, different people enjoy different difficulties. Right,
0: cuz what if I'm a new player, I want to try Keyforge Adventures, I go buy one deck, who knows the power level of that deck, right? So how does that player have fun with Keyforge
1: Adventures? Well, and and to extrapolate from your example there, if I'm a new player and I have my Keyforge deck and I play against the adventure and I lose. Some players are going to take that as a challenge and say, "Oh man, I'm going to figure out what went wrong. I'm going to go buy some decks. I'm going to find a deck that solves what went wrong and try that one. Other players are going to say, oh, no, I lost. That wasn't fun. And they'll put it away and never think about it again. So we wanted to have an option where it would be easy enough that most players would win most of the time. But we didn't want that to be the default because that would turn off all of the people that want to challenge. Right. So what we ended up with is very simple. How hard do you want it? Do you want to be drawing... One adventure card every time the Kirakin takes a turn. Okay, that'll be easy. That'll be very easy. Do you want to draw two adventure cards every time the Kirakin takes a turn? That will be a pretty standard challenge. Yeah, but if you really want to have a nightmarish event, then try drawing three cards every time the Kirakin takes their turn. And so at the end of the day, like we thought about it in theory and we tried it a little bit, and it was like it wasn't what we wanted. But then at the end, we revisited the idea and said, oh. But this actually solves a different problem that we weren't even thinking about. And so the short answer is, yes, there is difficulty scaling. And the nice thing is that it doesn't require that we have different versions of cards. It doesn't require that you have to take cards out of the deck, right? Like with Lord of the Rings. Yep. It's just very clean. How difficult do you want it? That'll determine how many adventure cards you draw. I recommend everyone start at two. I find two cards per round to be the most fun version of the game. But if you're here for beer and pretzels with a deck that you like, but maybe isn't great, then it's not important for you to be a, to be challenged. Draw only one card.
0: Yeah. Or if you're playing with your kids for the first time and you want to just make sure they have a good experience and they win yes. their first time out, exactly. certainly. You know, there, there's lots of reasons to be able to scale difficulty. And I'm glad you did it on a more granular level because if you make one default and now you've got to draw two to make it more difficult, well, how do I scale it down? There's no way to do that. So, like, each card is like kind of half of a level of difficulty almost. So I kind of like the way you did it that way, where two is standard. That way you can go down or up from there pretty easily.
1: And honestly, scaling down is usually the hardest part of games like this. Yep. Scaling up is easier. You just add more stuff. Right. Scaling down is like, how do you remove stuff without completely neutering the difficulty for the people that do want it to be challenging?
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I just got a couple more questions here because I know we've taken a lot of your time today and I totally appreciate it. So let me ask you you said that they may reap themselves.
1: So what did they do with their amber? What's the key doing with his amber? The key is not here to defeat the players. So something that we figured out pretty quickly was that a lot of key forges built around the idea that I'm trying to disrupt my opponent from generating amber and we needed those cards to still matter. So the key needed to generate amber too. So what's the Kyraken going to spend its amber on? Well, it's going to spend its amber to go faster because the Kyraken Kyraken isn't here to fight us. The Kyraken is here to get to the surface of the ocean, breach the ocean surface. It's going to kaiju its way onto the land, and then it's going to destroy civilization as we know it and probably flood the continent. And the next thing you know, all of the crucible is underwater, and that's bad. So the Kyraken is entirely just here to get amber and spend that amber to advance towards the surface.
0: So th- he's almost going to forge his own keys. And when he forges a certain number of keys or whatever, then he's going to get to the surface and win the game.
1: In theory, yes. In practice, <laughs> they're not keys, which is actually mechanically important because like okay. key forgery won't do anything. Got it. But for all intents and purposes, yes. The key is playing a standard game of key forge and you are not playing a standard game of key forge. Very cool. And let's talk a little bit about Abyssal Conspiracy. Did I get that right? The Abyssal Conspiracy. I've been mostly tight-lipped about it because, A, it's coming out later. B, I took lead on the Kyraken and Aaron took lead on the Conspiracy. So it's easier for me to speak to the Kyraken. Sure. Well, what can you say? I, I will say this, actually. The two adventures are intended to be paired together as a story. There isn't a campaign, necessarily, where the outcome of the first affects the second. but. The story that you are playing through when you play these adventures is very much you show up. Oh no, Keyraken. Defeat Keyraken. Okay, we thought we saved the day, but then the ship got sabotaged. Oh no, who sabotaged the ship? What are they up to? We must go investigate. The Abyssal Conspiracy.
0: Got it. All right. That's pretty cool that they have a linked story, even if not linked gameplay. And uh, I do think it'll be fun for people to challenge both with the same deck, especially if they have different victory conditions. Like you were saying, oh, I'll just get my fighty deck to fight the Heeracken, but that may not be the best thing for the Abyssal Conspiracy. So, you know, seeing if you can find that one deck that can take care of both problems might be a fun challenge for players.
1: And also, and this is actually very important, we went out of our way to make the two adventures very different from one another. Yeah. The first one is just a straight up boss fight. You've seen it in every game. There's a big monster, and you win when the big monster dies. The second one was intended to be an investigation. What does that mean in Keyforge exactly? Well, you'll find out soon, but I'll give you a hint. That is to say, it took a lot of its DNA from Arkham Horror, the card game.
0: Nice. Well, I I know at least one of our group will be super happy about that. And uh, I'm just super happy that I get to use my hundreds of Keyforge decks to (laughs) play in a cooperative uh, mode because I've been missing Keyforge, certainly. And the the latest set has been my favorite, Mass Mutation. And I just haven't gotten to play with those as much because obviously no live gameplay. Uh, So I do play with my son every once in a while, but I do look forward to being able to play cooperative with him. So two final questions for you real quickly. Number one, print and play. I know you said you're trying to get this to players as quickly as possible. Is there any thoughts on actually printing these cards and releasing them? Some people just don't want to print and play themselves or maybe they want to print and play themselves, but they'd like a nice, pretty version of this. So when they're showing it to their
1: friends or whatever else, you know, they're not bringing out home printed cards. That is something I cannot directly speak to. Okay. All I can really meaningfully say is go keep telling the fantasy flight pr and marketing team on social media the more they hear people ask for it just keep just keep asking is what i'll say
0: all right so you got you got permission here Go flood the Key Forge Keyforge forums. Go flood the uh, on Twitter, go go reach out to them, make sure that our voice is heard that we want physical versions. Cause that to be honest, that's the only concern I've heard from people is why aren't we getting a, a fully printable version of this?
1: Yeah, and I fully agree. And that was just part of the calculus of yeah. Obviously, we would all rather there be physical products, but physical products take take time to make. And at the end of the day, we wanted this to be something that players could play with sooner rather than later. And with that being
0: said, are there any current plans to keep coming out with new sets going forward? Or is it going to be, again, based on demand, how much we blow up the inbox? Hey, we love this, do
1: more? I don't know. If I told you what the future of Keyforge Adventures would be, then I wouldn't get to surprise you with what the future of KeyForge Adventures will be.
0: All right, so so no answer on that now. Well, how about release dates? So you said Rise of the Kraken's, or Key Racken, I'm sorry, don't wanna mess that up again. Rise of the Key <laughs> coming out first. And again, we're either gonna have this podcast episode launched like right after it or right before it, hopefully. Uh, I'm guessing that's coming out real soon, right? We said
1: end of April? Uh, yeah, uh, Key Racken is end of April, the Abyssal Conspiracy is in March, or pff, in May. In March, you've already got it. <laughs> what are you here for? Go play. That's the twist, is we're going to time travel back to March, and then we're going to launch it then. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, basically, we wanted them to come out, but we wanted to give the Kyraken some time on its own to sort of give people a chance to like get their feet wet, experience the Kyraken, and then maybe maybe once you're all done playing against the Kyraken and you feel like you've finally figured it out oh look here's this brand new next thing so you won't have to wait long is what I'm saying but you know give it three to five weeks maybe very cool
0: all right Tyler well thank you so much for joining me today we've got a little bit of everything we got some we got to know you a little bit better we got to talk some design shop I, I know I always enjoy those kind of conversations and we got to find out about one of my favorite games Key Forge and how it's going to be made cooperative so appreciate all your time and uh, all you've shared with us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I always I always love to chat. Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll have you on in a year or less when we're talking about the next Keyforge adventures. There you go. All right, Tyler. Thanks again. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com onestop, or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list.